1: Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
0: Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we do here is we take a piece of pop culture. We look underneath the bonnet and show how either deliberately or sometimes subconsciously it's been influenced by real history now I do throw out the gauntlet out there I've said it on the podcast I sometimes tweet about it online I'm at Jem Daducci on Twitter come and say hi and this is a direct response to that this is a shout out to Gavin Brown hi Gavin hello again mm. Last time I sort of sent out a message going, hey, any suggestions? Come on, challenge me, throw something at me. Gavin came back to me and said, OK, I'm going to give you a video game and I'm going to give you a TV show. For the TV show, he said The Expanse. I went, ha ha, already got there. Need to go back and listen to that one. Done it.
1: <laughs> Burn.
0: But then he said Homeworld as the video game. And it's like, ooh, not only have I not played Homeworld, but also, I'd never even heard of Homeworld. So, Gavin, I want to thank you, thank, you, thank, you, thank you for taking me on a journey and discovering a genuinely awesome game, which I really should have discovered 20 years ago. So, Homeworld is a sci-fi RTS video game actually you can only really play it on a computer and if none of that means anything to you don't worry let's talk a little bit about the history and say that this video game set in the future with spaceships is going to take us back more than three thousand years in history to a highly contentious piece of nation building so if that sounds interesting we will get there eventually so what is Homeworld? Well, it's a video game. I mean, technically it's not something you're going to play on a console like a PlayStation, but actually it's a proper computer game in the sense that you need a PC or a laptop, something like that to to be working it on. And it came out in 1999. As I've said, it's, it's got a science fiction type setting, but I mentioned it was an RTS. So to make this all relevant because coming out in 2021 and I'm recording this in 2021 there is a new version of June now frank herbert's june which came out many decades ago was considered by many to be unfilmable because it's so dense, it's got so much stuff in it. It's got multiple different plot strands, a cast of characters in the dozens, and obviously it's got these epic set pieces. However, when Star Wars came out, everybody scrambled to come up with some kind of Star Wars-y thing. Battle beyond the stars. And very much towards the end of the Star Wars. but So basically, Return of the Jedi came out in
1: 1983. Remember, a Jedi strength flows from the Force.
0: A movie of June came out in 1984. Now, it was directed by David Lynch, which if you don't know who he is, particularly in the 1980s, I mean, always, but his I'm going to say his peak was in the 80s and early 90s. He did really weird films. Probably the most accessible one is The Elephant Man, and that isn't even particularly accessible. I am not an animal. I am a human being. He's done Wild at Heart. And he was actually up to direct Return of the Jedi, which is a remarkable thing to say because that would have been a very different film he also did twin peaks the tv show as well so there's the joke about you know maybe we should have the log lady in in return the jedi but anyway for some reason he decided to get involved with june and and i say for some reason because he'd never done a big budget movie before he'd never done sci-fi before and he wasn't a fan of the movie i guess he was hoping it would up his commercial credentials so he could do more crazy stuff. But in the end, he was the wrong man for the job. He had no respect for the source material, and that is so important. The reason why Lord of the Rings... Lord of the Rings is ridiculous, okay? When you have lines like, quickly, to the bridge of khazad To the bridge of khazad You have to say that with a completely straight face, and the special effects and the set designs and the acting all has to be of a quality and of a size for it to work. And it works spectacularly well in the Lord of the Rings movies. But... In this one, by just annoying the fans, but also making it so dense and incomprehensible that newcomers don't understand what's going on, to keep it at a reasonable runtime, it was cut to pieces and they made these weird decisions to have endless exposition dumps. It's just a terrible movie. Now look, if you wanna break open some popcorn and watch a disaster, much like Wild Wild West, West. then be my guest, go ahead, watch Dune. But it is not a good film. It's not one of these ones where, it's a hidden masterpiece. No, it was bad then and it's bad now for all the basic mistakes of movie making. Too much exposition, huge plot holes terrible set design and and all this kind of stuff in there as well the point is this it didn't make any money okay however there was a video game that came out for it but then bizarrely a total of eight years later after the original movie comes out we get a second june video game And this is called Dune 2, unsurprisingly, but completely unrelated to the first Dune video game that was kind of trying to be the book. Dune 2 created something that became an entire genre, RTS, real-time strategy. Now, if you want to go onto Wikipedia, there's a whole bunch of video games in the 1980s that all claim to be early versions of real-time strategy. And this is one of these things. When we're talking about technology and games, there's always something earlier. But in terms of breaking it in to a commercial success, breaking it into an entire new genre of type of video game that people would want to play. Absolutely, it starts with Dune 2. So what is a real-time strategy game? Well, you get round-based strategy games. That would be the early Final Fantasies, in particular something like Final Fantasy seven, an absolute classic, and it's a bit like chess. I take my go, the computer takes their go. We go backwards and forwards until an outcome is decided. But a real-time strategy game is, yes, I am clicking on my troops to move towards the enemy base. It's it's a top-down, you're, it's like a god-mode look. You are looking from the heavens down on your little base and on your little troopers, and off they go marching across the map to attack the enemy. The thing is, though, this is all happening all at the same time. So if I just sit there and wait, the computer will eventually attack me and kill me and, and destroy everything which is not very good for me, obviously. The sheer genius of Dune 2 is it took a concept from Dune, the book, and it's been reused over and over again in real-time strategy games. Uh, What do I mean? So the whole thing about Dune is everybody's trying to fight for this desert planet called Arrakis, and it's covered in spice. So it's a desert world, it's got all these worms on it which can attack people, but it's covered in spice, and if you harvest the spice, that's the way that people can travel... Intergalactically, you know, cross star systems, etc. It's if you like the MacGuffin that, that is so special. It's it's the nuclear power of its age in the story. It's very very clever. He who controls the spice controls the universe. How do you build your armory? How do you build more tanks? You need spice in the game. So you've got these little harvesters going out onto the sand dunes, and you can see sometimes the brownie type sand dunes. That's where spice is. So you go over there occasionally. Your harvesters might get swallowed up by a random attack by worms. So that's a problem. So you need to gather resources, spice in this case, you need to build your base. And then with that improved base, you create improved tanks and soldiers and airplanes and so on and so forth to attack the enemy base that is also being built in real time. And that basic structure was the same then as it is now. So Dune 2 got it all right from the very beginning. So that was in 92. Then just two years later in 94, we get Warcraft. Warcraft is the big, big daddy of all of this because you've all heard of World of Warcraft. This has all come from the Warcraft game, which was basically a fantasy, you know, orcs and dwarves and all that kind of stuff, version of Dune 2. Then a year later, we get the other one that just ruled the roost in the... If you put money down... In 1996, let's say, which is going to have the bigger legacy, Warcraft or Command and Conquer? Everybody would have put their money on Command and Conquer and would have lost it because Warcraft ends up becoming the. Well, I mean, there's even been an actual Hollywood studio movie around Warcraft. The
1: Makara is sacred. The human one. Fairly your warriors honor their
0: tradition certainly hasn't been the same thing with command and conquer but anyway command and conquer which also turned into command and conquer red alert and so on and so forth exactly the same thing only instead of spice you are harvesting something called tiberium now in the case of homeworld came out in 99 so it's still in the sort of middle of the zeitgeist of hey real-time strategy games hugely popular on pcs at the time it was created by a company called relic this is important because relic created basically a trinity a holy trinity of amazing real-time strategy games two of which i played to death and yet i'd never heard of homeworld so the other one is warhammer 40,000: dawn of war which still today has a massive modding community and people love it and it's it's still the graphics aren't that bad 20 years later it really is quite good and it's a great great game but again it's about resources in this case it's not so much harvesting stuff it's a case of capturing flags and if you capture a flag if you capture a sort of territory that gives you resources and you can slowly start building stuff and then there's company of heroes basically world war Two, you know sending british or american infantry around and you can build german tanks and you fight the Germans in that one. So Relic created Dawn of War, Company of Heroes. Both of those I've been playing so many times. So great. The amazing thing with those two, both of them, is when you're honed in on a unit and you click on them, they'll say, yes, sir. But if you are halfway across the map and you just command them to move, it's crackly. like Yes, sir. In other words, they're telling you that they've got the commands through the radio. Even in Company of Heroes, when there are certain levels at nighttime, they whisper, yes, sir because they're sneaking around, they're trying not to be seen. It's that kind of environmental storytelling that's great. But I'm now gonna say, thank you, Gavin. Thank you. thank you, thank you, Gavin. That Homeworld is absolutely up there with these other games as well. Now, this is in space. You're not on lots of planets, basically harvesting stuff like dune 2 or warhammer forty thousand dawn of war boy that's a long thing to say you're actually got a fleet of ships and you're moving these ships around in a 3d environment the reality is it's largely a 2d plane it's like with all these rts games it's this classic scissor paper rock type of rules what do i mean by that i mean something like infantry infantry are cheap and you can build loads of them and they're sort of pretty good at attacking buildings particularly if they've got something like a, a flamer unit you know like a flamethrower or something like that but they're incredibly vulnerable to let's say an anti-aircraft gun which just sort of shoots them down like crazy but the anti-aircraft gun is almost useless against a tank and the tank can blow that up. But then the tank itself is also really useless against something else. So in other words, Scissors cuts paper, paper covers rock. Rock crushes lizard, lizard poisons Spock. Spock smashes scissors, scissors decapitates lizard. Lizard eats paper, paper disproves Spock. Spock vaporizes rock and as it always has, rock crushes scissors. There's no such thing as the best unit. Maybe there is a mega unit that you can purchase, but it's so ridiculously expensive that you're only gonna use it in the last 10% of the game because it's gonna take you forever to build it. And in the meantime, you're gonna need to do other things as well. I mean, the other great one around RTS is Starcraft, which is after Warcraft, Basically, Blizzard created then StarCraft, which is a science fiction version, so it's now sort of pushing into things like Dune 2 and Command and Conquer. There's a type of alien called Zergs, and there's the famous Zerg rush tactic where you just build loads and loads of really cheap units right at the beginning of the game, and you just overwhelm the other guy before they can actually build their base properly. Anyway, lots of strategies, and some of these things are actually online esports as well, particularly StarCraft, huge deal in Korea, South Korea, for example. Homeworld is not one of these e-sport type games. It takes a bit more time. When you're moving around your capital ships, it just takes a while for them to move across the screen. And so there is this sort of Star Trekky style of combat there. But yes, you do have your fighters as well, you know, the little planes zooming around the spaceships, actually. And so Homeworld has its own flavour. To everything else I've just mentioned, I guess they all have their distinctive flavour, and I've just mentioned the best of the best. If you were to play Starcraft, Warcraft, Command & Conquer, let's say Red Alert, Dune 2, Warhammer 40,000 Dawn of War and Homeworld, you are going to have a hell of a ride it's going to be an amazing time for you but between all those games it'll take you a year to play them all and you know probably play a bit of it online or against the the computer and just sort of like little arena types situations i mean you could just play one of them over and over again probably wouldn't get boring for you people spend literally thousands of hours on these games but homeworld for some reason doesn't get necessarily the same love except It got a remaster in 2015. It's available right now on Steam. So you can... How do I know that? Might have got involved in purchasing something while I was doing some research. So, yes, it's out there right now. The graphics look great. But the story of it... Because each one of these things has basically a story. In the case of Warhammer 40,000, it's set in the Warhammer universe. And if you're familiar with that, then, oh, yeah, funnily enough, the Space Marines are finding this tainted world of chaos. So they're going to be fighting against chaos and blah, blah, blah in command and conquer. It's basically a United Nations type force against Nod, the forces of Nod, which have a scorpion tail as the symbol. So you know that they're bad. There's always some bad guys. So in this case, what we've got in Homeworld is a force of, of basically alien travelers who have been sneak attacked and are now flying en masse like a convoy trying to find Higara, their homeworld, hence the name of the video game, okay? So the whole point of this is to sort of have these various space battles, to break through the enemy forces, to eventually find. By finding the homeworld, you have found your own territory, if you like. So this is very reminiscent of some rather big history, and also some other rather big sci-fi, too. So when I mentioned the fact that there's this bunch of science fiction-y type spaceships traveling across the universe, trying to find their homeworld, if that sounds vaguely familiar, well, there's absolutely a sort of historic precedence to this, but there's another link to Star Wars. You must feel the force around you. Here, between you, me, the tree, the rock. Everywhere. Again, like I said earlier on, Star Wars comes out mega-hit. Then Empire Strikes Back comes out still mega-hit. Maybe not quite as big as Star Wars, but the point is, people like the sci-fi. And it is worth pointing out that generally, sci-fi was seen as something that didn't do very well at the box office, that it was basically B-movie fodder. And in essence, Star Wars, the original Star Wars, is B-movie fodder done really well. And it led to all these other spin-offs, not just in terms of movies, but also in terms of TV shows. So we get, in the late 1970s, Battlestar Galactica, which is exactly Homeworld's plot. We have the 12 colonies, and they are attacked by the Cylons. And so a bunch of ragtag survivors jump into every available spaceship and start heading across the galaxy to try and find the lost colony of Earth.
1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: And with the one military vessel still available, the Battlestar, which is called Galactica, as opposed to I don't know, Jeffrey, which is an incredibly cool name for a Battlestar, okay? It's, It's a battleship in space, okay? The weird thing about Battlestar Galactica, there were actually court cases around it. It was argued that it was way too similar to Star Wars. George Lucas actually had a legal hearing over the similarities. And Battlestar Galactica was a great TV show, but it was so expensive. It was originally meant to be a series of movies, but it got such great viewing figures that the TV company immediately turned around and said, no, 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 we're going to be changing it from TV movies to an ongoing TV series which just threw all of production into chaos and why they started recycling all the special effects shots. Yes, it's always cheaper and they were probably always going to do a bit of that. They had to keep recycling them because they just didn't have the time to do new ones for next week's episode, etc. So it was actually a big hit, but it was ruinously expensive and the steam started running out of it. Plus there were legal issues. There was a brief attempt to try and recreate it called Battlestar Galactica 1980, which was a huge, huge flop where basically they started re-editing bits it. and the idea was to keep production costs down. The Battlestar is up in the sky but some of the people just land on planet Earth in 1980 because it was 1980 by then and they start sort of helping out humanity. It's a bit like Star Trek 4, the one with the whales when they go travel back in time and go to sort of modern-day 1980s San Francisco. We're going to attempt- It's a bit like that. Before that was even written, only it was done terribly, and nobody liked it, and it wasn't really Battlestar Galactica. But the weird thing was that there was a certain Egyptian element to the fighter pilots in the Vipers in in Battlestar Galactica. And I don't know if that was deliberate or not, and I know I've sort of come on to Battlestar Galactica a lot, but this whole idea of people having their home destroyed and now traveling under attack as they go along by an enemy force to find the chosen land, the origin, the place where they can be safe. This all goes way back. Indeed, it goes back to some of the earliest tracts in the Bible, specifically the Old Testament. The Old Testament's first five books, quite often referred to as the Pentateuch, the very first book's Genesis. You remember that one? It's like in the beginning. Adam and Eve, all that good stuff, okay? Nowhere in the ark. Then you've also got Exodus. You've also got books like Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and you get the idea. So, But this, the first five books are considered to be the earliest writings. And what's interesting in that is we obviously have got no idea who wrote it. For a long time, these first five books were attributed to Moses, and it took literally centuries before it occurred to anybody that Moses can't possibly have written the first five books because he dies halfway through one of the books. So who's writing after Moses has died? I mean, just that simple fact alone means that he can't have written them. So if you ask biblical scholars, and, and this is the thing, I, I say this as no dis- I'm not saying that any of this makes it more or less true, but there are people who look at the Bible the way people who look at, I don't know, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, or diaries from the period of the American Revolution. It's a text that needs to be given historical rigor to. And so today, biblical scholars refer to the authors J, E, and P, why are they called these things and first of all nobody's literally saying it's just three guys j e and p but they're saying that there are clearly three types of literary compliance going on and the first two i find the most interesting j stands for yahweh now that's because j e and p were invented in germany and in germany Yahweh is spelt with a J, not a Y, okay? So there's Yahweh writers, there's the Elohim, that's the E, Elohim writers, and then there's the P, priestly writers. Now, what's the difference between Yahweh and Elohim? It's because every time they write about God, as in one true God, the God, big beard, up there, runs heaven, God, right? Sometimes it is referred to as Yahweh and sometimes it's referred to with the completely different word Elohim. So this has to be two different literary versions. So that's Yahweh and Elohim but then there's the priests and it is what it sounds. Particularly when you get to Leviticus really that entire section, that entire book of the Bible isn't if you like driving the story of the jewish nation any further it's not talking about any more revelations between humanity and the divine it's really a list of regulations which to be honest for the day-to-day jew in the street is not going to be of you know vital information all the time. But clearly, this was the instructions for the priestly class that needed to know rituals, what was considered clean and unclean, sanctified and unsanctified, and a whole list of basically moral rules. We all know about the Ten Commandments, but there are actually so many commandments in in the Bible, particularly in in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, because people needed to know what the rules were. if you go back 2000 years in essence your religious rules were the same thing as your judiciary and you know a lot of western laws and regulations are founded on what's right or wrong in christianity you might sit there and eat a hamburger and not even think about it you know it's made of beef and yet something like that would be restricted in christianity India, because Hindus don't eat beef. You don't even think about that one, but it's a different religious point, And therefore there are these sort of different laws, which naturally evolved from the religious and culture of the area. So priestly ones, it's all the rules and regulations. And there are loads of them. And as I say, Leviticus is just a long list of what you are and aren't allowed to do. I've got a rude joke, which I'm not going to share with you. If you. If you listen to this, you want to hear what that sort of like rude joke is. I will tell you on Twitter, but I will, a direct message so nobody else can see it. So yeah, at Jim DeDucci on Twitter, but that's only between me and you, all right? It is worth pointing out that in these very early books of the Old Testament, the whole concepts of heaven, hell, and all these sorts of things have yet to formalize and crystallize properly. To give you an idea, the book of Exodus is thought to have been describing events from about... 1300 BC. I mean BCE is the way some people refer to it, but you get the idea. More than 3,000 years ago, it was written down. Nobody's entirely sure, but you know, when you look at sort of like the language, and you've got these Hebrew experts, anywhere between 700 and 900 BC. So I mean, they're, they're sort of about 3,000 years old again. But they are describing events that happened centuries earlier. But this is a time when it was written down before Rome was founded, basically. So, you know, the Romans aren't even a consideration at this point. But this is a time when everybody around the, the Jewish people who have a one true faith that they have a one-god system, a monotheism, surrounded by polytheism, you know, all these various different other gods. So, if you read some of the early parts of the Old Testament, it's really telling how it's referred to. So, for example, when Abraham meets God, basically, God refers to himself as, I am the God of the Israelites. In other words, I'm not the one true God and there's no other gods around there, because that would have been meaningless to the writers. It's sort of like, well, hang on, what about Horus? Or what about Beelzebub? Or Baal, as he's actually technically known. If you think, oh, hang on, he's the devil. It's like, that's a bit of propaganda in the Bible. They didn't like Baal because he was a kind of storm god who was very popular in the Mediterranean and the Middle East. So, yeah, you're obviously going to diss a competitive god. There are other gods out there like Zeus, for example. So you're not going to just turn around and say, I'm the God, I'm the only God, because that would have been a ridiculous statement to have been made around about 700 BC. So the other thing, interestingly, there is that God talks to Abraham and he reveals that the two people with him are angels. They don't have wings. That's because at that time, the concept of heaven being up in the air wasn't a thing. Only when that happened, do we get angels being described as having wings. And also... God's just having a chat with Abraham, whereas you go a little bit later to Moses, and Moses cannot conceive of God. Oh, don't grovel. One thing I can't stand, it's people groveling. Sorry. And don't apologize.
1: Every time I try to talk to someone, it's sorry this and forgive me that and I'm not worthy. What are you doing now? I'm averting my eyes, oh Lord. Well, don't.
0: It's like those miserable psalms. They're so depressing. God is now, by now, written in a way that he is so awesomely powerful. Basically, you know when you sometimes get a flash of light, like a flashbulb from a camera or something like that, and you get that kind of afterburn in your eye that sort of sits there for a little longer? That is basically what they're describing when they're describing the burning bush. You can't look directly on God because it would blow your tiny mortal mind. They're these sheer... Infinite power of God means that the best you can do is just look at this afterglow of God, which is still, if you read it, is still terrifying and visceral to, to Moses. And so you get other writers going, this is not describing the same deity. I mean, it literally says in the Bible in one place, you can gaze upon God's face. And in another part in the Bible, it's going, no human can gaze upon a God's face. It's impossible. And it's like those two statements cannot be true. And it's a reminder that what you got with both the Old Testament and New Testament is a collection of stories. Nobody got to be editor. Nobody got to keep continuity using a modern phrase. But with the Exodus, it's incredibly powerful. You know, you do have, Moses is interlinked with this. And indeed in the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, it's made even more overt that it's actually a woman who's leading the people in Battlestar Galactica towards earth. And it says that, you know, it's prophesied that she will not live to see them actually reach there, but she will send them on the way. And it's exactly the same thing with Moses. He dies before they actually reach the promised land. And I'm sure, I mean, this is the thing, the story of the Exodus is so famous, you don't have to be religious, you don't have to be Christian to know the basic gist of the Jews were the slaves in Egypt, Moses helps them with an uprising. There's the ten plagues. They're sort of sent out of Egypt. They then cross the desert, being attacked by the Egyptians. They then cross the Reed Sea, which is misremembered as the Red Sea. It's not necessarily the same place. And that's when you know Moses parts the the waters. They all get through, and then the Egyptian forces get crushed underneath the water. And then eventually they find the land of milk and honey. That's kind of there in the story that's quite mishmashed but what's interesting is that when you look at the egyptian when basically the egyptian hieroglyphs started being translated in the mid-1800s basically the church started getting a bit edgy about that because now we were going to see everything from the other point of view and do you know how many times moses crops up in hieroglyphs from the egyptian perspective the answer is zero It seems that Moses is a bit like King Arthur or, you know, some other people in history, well, not history, in mythology, seems to be a kind of legendary character. And the other problem is the Jews weren't slaves in Egypt. There is zero evidence of a mass migration of Jewish people leaving ancient Egypt and crossing the Sinai Peninsula. The other thing that's worth pointing out is God was leading them to the Holy Land, and yet it says in the Bible they wandered the desert for 20 years.
1: After 400. Turn
0: left: You can walk from Egypt to Israel in a couple of weeks, basically. <laughs> if the Almighty got lost and sent them via, I don't know, China, uh, then then th- what's going on there? So th- there are lots of it's clearly meant to be metaphorical, not to be taken literally. But the other interesting thing is, when the Jews arrive in the Middle East, it's not empty. There are people there, and there is then a campaign of violent conquest. So when Jewish people say, we've always been here in Israel, it's like, well, even your own holy book says, no, you weren't, and you had to basically wipe out some locals. I'm not saying that they were Arabs. We just don't know who they were. But we do know that by round about 9800 BC, we do start getting Jewish settlements and the start of Jerusalem in what is now the Holy Land? You know, what we now, now today call the Holy Land. Now, you know, i'm trying to say this as equally and, and evenly as possible everybody has the right to exist you know when people start saying you know you have the right to be angry with foreign policy or, or actions of any government but you don't have the right to say that no government should not exist or evaporate you know that's when we get into flat-out anti-semitism okay there are you know many many just sort of peaceful jews just living their lives doing the best they can in israel not wanting to get like rocket attacks from gaza or wherever or or you know the Jewish communities around the world. They have been persecuted for, I'm sad to say, literally thousands of years, and it's still happening. We're still seeing desecrations of of graves and things like that. Near me, I'm going to keep as vague as possible. I'm pleased to say that the the one synagogue in, in my area is actually pretty near me. Short walk away. But it's got barbed wire around it. It's got security lighting. You don't have that on churches. You don't have that on mosques. It shows you how victimized to this day even in the 21st century that still the jewish populations of the world are vulnerable to attack and, and if you like this can all be traced back to exodus it may be legendary but there is this feeling of fear there there could be attacks at any time and under history there are absolutely multiple times when the when the Jewish nation has fallen, it could be to the Hittites, it could be to the Egyptians, it could be to the Crusaders, it could be to the Muslims, it could be to Christians. I mean, it's just, you know, that area has been fought over so many times. And all of this can be traced back to a simple request from Gavin Brown. Again, kudos to you. I hope I have extracted enough history out of a video game set in deep space. I've gone to ancient Bronze Age history here, and monotheism and some of the oldest texts of monotheism in the world. All this from a video game called Homeworld, released in 1999. Look, really hope you enjoyed that one. And as always, watch out next week. There'll be another one coming down the line. Don't worry, there's always another one not that far away. And I hopefully will speak to you soon.